Dear Father, I am thankful, Father, for a consistent opportunity to teach in this place. And perhaps, Father, more than anything, I'm thankful that it's small. For small, Father, means a chance to get to know each person. It means a comfortable and informal environment. It means real relationships, Father. And perhaps also it means we've uh, stayed below a radar that might have otherwise tripped us up because uh, someone else might have wanted what you gave us. Uh, But instead, we've been able to consistently teach and meet for 10 years now, Father, and that's a great testimony. And we thank you, Father, for the way you put it to great work in the world around us. And uh, we just want to remain faithful with what you've given us to do, Father. We don't have any great designs on it. We don't want to fall prey to pride, which will be what you show us in the Word tonight. We just want to be consistent. And we'll take our reward in heaven, Father, and we'll look forward to the praises you'll offer us there. And uh, tonight, let us... uh, Just continue in that consistent study. Let us see the word as it truly was intended to be understood. Teach us as you as your Holy Spirit can do, Father, as only he can do. And and uh, give us each something, Father, that we can take from here that will encourage us and help us please you better. We pray this in Jesus name. Amen. Tonight, we're going to take the next step down the chiastic structure of chapters 2 through 7 in the book of Daniel. And the whole idea of a chiastic structure is so that it directs you to the point, meaning the center of it is really the key idea. We are now taking the next step down the chiasm. We've done A. Chapter 2 was A. Chapter 3 was B last week. Tonight, we go into step C. I'll just remind you of the six steps. A was the prophecy concerning four Gentile empires that dominate Israel and the world. That was the statue. And then B took us to the next thought that God delivered Daniel's friends from Gentile persecution. And then C, this week, God humbles the Gentile king Nebuchadnezzar to demonstrate his sovereignty. And in that progression, you're learning a lot of things. Chapter A was how Daniel shows that through the interpretation of the dream, the Gentiles were being given authority by God over Israel. The main point there was to explain to Israel how they were no longer in charge and that it was in God's keeping that they would be under Gentile subjugation. It gave Israel the context in which they could understand their fate. Then step B, last time we met in chapter 3, where Daniel's friends were saved supernaturally from persecution. That chapter reminds Israel that though they are under Gentile oppression, the Lord has not abandoned his people, that particularly the remnant of Israel is assured that the Lord is going to continue showing favor to them even in the midst of this time of judgment. So not all is lost. There's a point in what's going on. And furthermore, the last time we studied in chapter 3, it illustrated that even though God has written this history of coming empires and Gentiles in charge of the world, Nevertheless, he continues to exert supernatural control over everyday events. Because Daniel 3 stands as a refutation against those who think God just created the world like a top spinning on a table and then just walked away to let it do whatever it would do. Even though God has set up this structure of kingdoms, even though he's put Gentiles over Israel, he is still actively engaged in steering the world even as it follows his larger plan. So he steps in supernaturally to protect those friends. All right, that's what we've done so far. Now, today we're going to reach the deepest part of the chiasm, step C. And step C and its corresponding alternate point, C prime, as I designated up here, those two provide the point, the main idea of the chiasm. And in today's chapter, the Lord is going to humble the king of Babylon. He's the very man that God placed in authority over Israel. In fact, indeed, all the world is underneath his authority. But today, in chapter 4, he's brought low. Though ultimately... He'll be restored from where he is taken. So the point in these circumstances will become evident to us as we go through the chapter. 
But perhaps the most interesting part of this chapter is its author. The chapter is written from the first person perspective of Nebuchadnezzar himself. It's penned by Daniel, obviously, but it's likely Daniel simply recorded the testimony that the king dictated to him, probably after the fact, for posterity's sake. So we could say this is the only chapter of scripture written by a Gentile, perhaps the only one written by a pagan. So as we begin the chapter, let's take note that the chapter itself is structured as its own mini chiasm in the structure of A, B, B prime A within this chapter. So it begins with the king praising the Lord of heaven for his mighty works. It moves to an account of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Then following that, you see Daniel's interpretation of the dream. Then it ends with another praise of the Lord by Nebuchadnezzar. That's the overall structure of the chapter. So let's begin with the first of those four parts, the moment when Nebuchadnezzar praises the Lord. It says here, verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. If you want to scan down the the end of the chapter, if it's within sight on the page, you'll notice that some of these same things are said again at the very end of the chapter. That's sort of in keeping with what I said a minute ago, that the structure is a mini chiasm. But let's start at the beginning. Verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar opens his account, and he does so by addressing everyone on the earth. It may seem a bit grandiose to think that he imagined his words would be sent to the entire world. That's sort of like assuming someone else is interested as you are in your poodle pictures on Facebook, which is never true because, let's be honest, no one wants to see a poodle picture. But in this case, in this case, his assumption actually makes some sense given what the Lord has shown him in chapter 2, right? Because the Lord declared he was the king of all the earth according to the interpretation of the dream. So he's just acting out on the very premise that he's already been given by God in addressing the entire world as his subjects. Would That makes sense. But even more importantly, of course, his words are preserved in Scripture, and the Word of God will endure forever, even after the heavens and earth are gone. Nebuchadnezzar's words are still going to be there, which is remarkable. So both in his own day and in our day, these words do truly go to the ends of the earth. The testimony is a testimony for all people for all time. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar says, It seems good to him to declare the good things the Lord has done. And he's referring here to the story that's about to unfold in the chapter. Looking back from what's already happened, he remembers the entire experience and he says up front, this was something mighty, something great. Now, as you read through this account, you're going to struggle perhaps to understand why he would think back on this episode as something good and great from God's hand. In fact, the story is going to read like a mini version of the story of Job. Things taken from somebody only to be given back. And yet he is here at the outset praising God for it. So let's keep that in mind. Secondly, the effect of this experience for Nebuchadnezzar was for him to come to the conclusion that the Lord's kingdom is everlasting. And specifically, he says, from generation to generation. That's really an important summary of chapter 4. Earlier, we learned that the powers that come in the Gentile age are going to rule the world as God appoints. First, Nebuchadnezzar, then Persian, uh, Medo-Persian Empire, and so on. We learned that from the statue. One kingdom giving way to the next. You can remember that as that progresses through history, you'll have a few generations in which one of those kingdoms is in power, and then inevitably, sooner or later, they hand power over to some future generation in another kingdom. So it's inevitable that human control, human rule, will have to give way over time to some other group of people, because we don't live forever, and even what we set up in our lifetime eventually gets taken over by somebody else later on. But the Lord 
as he said, truly is the one who rules the earth and his kingdom in an everlasting way from generation to generation. And who better to declare that scriptural truth than the man who begins the statue? The guy who is the head of gold, right? Every man who receives power to rule has come to recognize that his own rule is subjected to the authority of God, whether they realize it in this life or whether they realize it in the next. He has the privilege of learning it early. Remember, this king is a Gentile king, and at the outset at least, he's a pagan, who took God's people captive, killing many of them in the process. I mean, we don't want to gloss over the reality of what it meant for Nebuchadnezzar to ride into town and destroy a city and kill people and drag the rest of them off in slavery. Yet this man declares that God himself, the God of Israel, is greater and that his kingdom is going to last longer than his own kingdom. So the very man who destroys Israel is praising Israel's God here. Remember that next time someone suggests to you, for example, that Hitler's reign of terror over the Jewish people proves that God wasn't around or that he's not in control. All right, let's go into the depth of it, though. That's just the introduction. Now the king starts to tell the story of the dream. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream, and it made me fearful. And these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. And then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them. But they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom a spirit of the holy God, in whom is a spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now this reads a lot like chapter 2 already, obviously. Once again, you find the king receiving a dream and the dream makes such an impact he can't get it out of his head. Here again, very similar to chapter 2. But what is not similar to chapter 2 is this time the king's willing to tell anyone he can what the dream is. And then he asks for the interpretation. Now, what do you, why do you suppose the king was willing to do this now when he wasn't willing to do it back in chapter 2? Well, the answer is that what he's doing now is the normal method. The king would call his staff of advisors together. He'd tell them what his dream is, and then they would explain what they thought it meant. Now, back in chapter 2, the king departed from the original pattern. He demanded that they reveal the content of the dream on their own. Remember? Remember all the protests from all the magicians because they had to know the dream? They said, no one's ever done this. This is crazy. We don't know why he had the desire to change the pattern back in chapter 2, but we do know the Lord planted the desire in his heart so that he would have to eventually run into Daniel. God's purpose in that was to get Daniel involved. But by the same token, now looking at this situation, you might wonder why he even bothered to ask the other guys for help this time when they were so useless for him last time, right? Once you've discovered a man with a talent that Daniel possessed, why do you waste time with lesser counselors? Well, a couple of reasons come to mind. One, perhaps Daniel's just busy elsewhere. It says, finally, Daniel came in. Now, that could suggest he was gone. Remember, he's a man of great power and responsibility in the province of Babylon. It's unlikely he just hangs around the palace. He's probably got things to do. But I think it's also possible that the king had a sense of what the dream was revealing. After all, he's already afraid of it. And as you'll see in a minute, it's pretty obvious what the dream's about. So maybe he was afraid to hear Daniel's interpretation. He was sort of shopping around for a better opinion, maybe. Furthermore, when the king turns to his regular counselors, they can't offer an explanation concerning what the dream is, even though they know what the dream is. These guys must be a bunch of quacks because you'd think they would be able to at least guess, at least throw out an idea, right? It's not that hard at this point. 
That's what makes their silence so surprising this time, that they don't even try. My guess is that they didn't try because they understood it. It made perfect sense. But the story is not good news for the king. And, you know, you don't necessarily want to be the one who has to deliver the bad news. Finally, notice in verse 8 how the king describes Daniel. He repeats that Daniel's name is Belteshazzar, which he says is a name after Nebuchadnezzar's God. And then he acknowledges that Daniel is a special man. He's a man who has a spirit of holy gods. These statements are important, particularly for where they fall in the chapter, because they confirm for us that at least at the outset of this story, the king is a pagan. He does not know the God of Israel except to know him from a distance. He identifies with a pagan God from whom he got the name for Daniel. He sees Daniel as having power, but only from other gods. Though he respects it, that demonstration by itself has not been enough to cause the king to rethink his allegiance to his God or to seek Daniel's God in an exclusive way. So what we're saying is he's a polytheist. He respects many different gods, or at least he acknowledges them. And that's showing us that he doesn't know the Lord at this point in the story. Hold that thought for later. Daniel then proceeds to reveal the dream. Verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches. And all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind, and as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. This sentence is by decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets it over the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, inasmuch as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the Holy One of the Holy Gods is in you. So the dream, as you see, centers on a single great tree that dominates the earth. Uh, The description's a bit odd because he says it reaches to the sky such that the entire earth from one end to the other can see it. But on a round earth, that is literally impossible. So you have to assume the king is dreaming of a flat earth. And since we know the earth is round, well, you might wonder, well, why why doesn't the Lord give the king a dream that is consistent with the actual way that creation exists? Well, the answer is really simple. The king in his day would have assumed the earth to be flat, as was the common understanding in that time. Therefore, the Lord gave the king a version of the world in his dream that fits his expectations. And he did this not to confirm the king's viewpoint, but simply not to distract him from the main point of the dream. I mean, imagine if the Lord had shown him a round earth in the midst of a dream about something else. I think that detail might have overshadowed all the rest of it. He just woken up one day saying, guess what? The earth is round. And by the way, this is important because there are a fringe group that uh, will still tell you that Scripture maintains the earth is flat and NASA has a giant conspiracy to make you think it's round. All evidence to the contrary, they don't care. And they'll actually go to verses like this 
to say God is talking about a flat earth, obviously, because it would have been impossible for this dream to be true if it were round. The answer is as simple as I gave it to you. It's that God can use other images of things to make a point so that it gets to the main issue without it necessarily meaning he's contradicting himself concerning creation. The point of the dream wasn't to say, here's what the world is like. The point of the dream was to talk about a tree. So on a flat world, at least in the dream, one tree reaches to the sky and therefore it can be seen from everywhere. This tree was like Eden itself, the garden. Feeding the world, protecting its inhabitants, the fruit was abundant, the branches were home to every bird, the shade accommodated every beast. But then, as you see, this angel comes down from heaven and he comes with the task of removing the tree. He does violence to every part of it. Only the roots of the tree and the stump are allowed to remain. The stump is shackled after it's cut with bronze and iron and then the stump is allowed to just sit there in the field of grass with dew collecting on it. But then if you notice, and I'm sure most of you did at this point, notice in the dream the pronoun change. Very prominently, you go to he at this point. It becomes clear at this point that the tree stands for a man. This is why I said it's pretty easy to interpret. It basically interprets itself. Because at this point, the man is now the point of the, of the story, and he is now said to live in the wild like an animal, and he receives the mind of a beast acting like an animal, and then the, this strange period in this man's life is going to continue for a period of seven. And the reference to seven is not defined here. We're going to see later in the interpretation that it refers to seven years. I'll show you why later. Then the angel declares in the dream that all of this has happened to whoever this guy is as a result of the decision of the holy ones. Now, the use of the plural here is kind of curious. I mean, at first you might think it just suggests the angels themselves. But the problem is angels don't make decisions. Not in scripture. Angels carry them out. They are messengers. They're not decision makers. I think the more reasonable conclusion is that the Holy Ones refer to the Godhead itself. In other words, God, plural, decided this fate for these men. That if, if I'm right, this would be another Old Testament reference to the Trinity. Finally, as the dream comes to an end, the reason given for the man's downfall is to ensure that the power to rule is understood to come from above, given out by the Lord as he desires. You could say, easy come, easy go. In fact, he gives it to even the lowliest of men. It's not that men earn his right to have power. He assigns it according to his own choices. So I could go back through now and give some commentary, but rather than do that in terms of the dream details, I'll wait for the interpretation, and then we'll weigh in on all the significance of all of these matters as it comes out in the interpretation, okay? So let's just keep moving. Verse 19, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt and in which branches the birds of the sky lodged. It is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. In that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time passes over him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my lord the king, that you would be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven 
And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So Daniel hears the dream, and I think much like the other counselors and maybe even the king himself, he gets it, and he too is frightened to relate it, but the king doesn't appear to be surprised that Daniel's afraid, does he? I think you're getting a sense here that that anyone connected with the dream kind of knows where this is going. And Daniel, though, is truly grieving over what he's got to reveal to the king. And that's, I think, a consistent feature of every prophet of God who's ever been sent to anyone. Uh, For example, to those sent to Israel, you know, there's usually bad news somewhere in the prophecy. And those prophets are seen often weeping over what they had to reveal. Jeremiah, most famously of all. The king reassured Daniel, though, it's okay, you know, you can tell me what's, what's wrong. With that reassurance, he then has the courage to move into the interpretation, but not before he commiserates with the king, saying, oh, I wish this wasn't about you. It seems that Daniel has a, a true affection for the man. I don't think from the standpoint of personal regard, I think more from the standpoint of respect for God's choice and that this is the man God has put in charge. And now that you've come to serve him and, and work with him, you don't want to see that going away. Who knows what comes next, right? Nevertheless, Daniel then tells the king what he and and probably everyone who knew about this dream had already understood, that the tree represented him. And like the head of gold in the statue, it emphasizes that he is in complete and total rule over the earth for at least a time. And each detail in the dream just reinforces the picture. You know, you have the birds nesting in the branches. That is a classic Old Testament picture of Gentile population in some setting. Jesus uses the same picture in a parable when he talks about the mustard seed growing into a tree and then the birds of the air nest in the branches. A picture of the church welcoming in Gentiles to live within it. Then you have the beasts feeding underneath, which represents the provision that the king's empire gave to all of its subjects. And then the shade That's really a picture of the power of the kingdom to protect and defend its citizens through enforcement of a time of peace. You know, the the nature of, of a kingdom of this strength is no one challenges it. So the tree pictures the king as the king himself represents the entire kingdom. Then Daniel gets to the heart of the dream and he says, That angelic woodcutter that you see coming down from heaven, that's the Lord driving you, Nebuchadnezzar, away from your kingdom and rule for a time. Notice the tree's cut down, but the root and the stump remain left in the ground and Daniel says that detail emphasizes that you will one day get your kingdom back and notice in verse 26 he tells the king the root is proof that this calamity is not the end of your time as king so that in other words if the Lord had wanted to just put Nebuchadnezzar's out of, Nebuchadnezzar out of rule forever then the dream would have seen the stump pulled up by the roots and there would have been nothing left so leaving the stump means hope that's a powerful symbol in scripture The Lord repeatedly uses this symbol, and in particular is when he uses this symbol to represent the nation of Israel, hardened and set aside for a time during the period of the church, only later to be restored. Paul says in Romans, speaking of how Israel is cut down for a time to make opportunity for Gentiles, he says in Romans 11:17, If some of the branches were broken off and you, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, well, do not be arrogant toward the branches, but if you are arrogant, remember it is not you who supports the root, but the root that supports you. Speaking about Israel as the root there. The fact that a root remains 
means the nation has not been pulled out by the roots. The nation has a future. It's a consistent picture every time it's used in Scripture. In fact, Paul goes on to say in that same chapter of Romans that Israel will one day rise again, despite having been cut down for a time. Romans 11.23, speaking of Israel, he says, They also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, well, how much more will these who are the natural branches be grafted into their own natural or their own olive tree? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in metaphor, you could say a chopping down of Israel's tree has happened until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled and the tree will grow again. God will give Israel back the promises he, or give them the promises he's spoken to them. So that picture is evident here as well. It's a picture of Nebuchadnezzar's future opportunity to return as king. Curiously, the tree stump in the dream is bound. Brass and iron, the symbol of, of the band would suggest captivity, submission and the metals brass iron they suggest judgment often in scripture you see the lord's judgment pictured by a brass feet burning as in a furnace iron is a picture of ruling in absolute power ruling with a rod of iron for jesus's rule so it would suggest that he is under authority under rule subjected and cut down from authority so the meaning is clear the king is going to be taken out of power as a judgment from god and yet not deposed forever not forgotten he's only set out of power for a period of time but during that time, he's going to suffer through some particularly humiliating circumstances. In verse 25, you get the details here of what's planned. First, he's driven away from mankind, so he's going to trade the comfy civility of the palace life for the life that beasts have in a field, literally. Notice, he will not make this change of his own desire, but he will be, quote, driven away. So what drives somebody to do such a thing? Well, back in verse 16, back in the dream itself, we're told the king will receive the mind of a beast in exchange for his mind of a man. Simply put, Nebuchadnezzar is going to start thinking and therefore behaving like an animal rather than like a human being. Now, we don't know to what extent his behaviors actually looked literally like animal behaviors, but the description indicates that he lived like a wild man in the field, without shelter, perhaps attacking and eating prey much like a lion, raw. I'm assuming these things, obviously. Refraining from communicating with words, that would be implied by saying the mind of a beast. Beast can't talk. He probably wasn't talking to anyone. Perhaps the Lord accomplished this change by permitting a demon to possess Nebuchadnezzar. Certainly demon possession produces these kinds of bizarre behaviors, as you see with the story of the man living in the tombs in chapter 8 of Luke. As Jesus comes across the water and reaches the tombs, and it says in verse 27 in Luke 8, When he came out onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed by demons, who had not put on any clothing for a long time, so imagine that, and was not living in a house, sounds familiar, but in the tombs. Seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice, What business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times. He was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard, and yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. There's the word, driven again. So you can easily imagine that the exchanging of the mind might have been possession of a demon. God allowed it, obviously, and it produced these outcomes. Or, and this is even more intriguing, perhaps the Lord did exactly, literally, what he describes. Supernaturally, the Lord changes the king's mind into that of an animal mind. 
We don't know what it would look like biologically. That's not important. But that its effect would have been he had no longer the thoughts of a man. He had only the thoughts of a beast. Obviously, we can't imagine how that would work, but we can't say it's outside God's power. But in either case, give a moment's thought to what it means that God can do this to someone. Today, we would describe behavior of anything like this as insanity. And certainly, it must have appeared to be that as well to the people of that day. Insanity is simply the name we give to unexplained bizarre behaviors of one kind or another. The secular world gives almost no allowance to the possibility that bizarre behavior is the result of supernatural cause. You know, the DSM, whatever we're on now, 5, 6, wherever it's at, is the manual that, that mental health professionals use to diagnose behaviors in some kind of standardized way. And it's really nothing but pattern matching. It says if you find a certain pattern of behaviors that fit this characterization, then you can assume it's either this condition or that condition or this condition. It's cataloging. But it's a far cry from diagnosing in the true sense. We just understand that behaviors follow patterns. And sometimes we know more about some than others. Clinically, if you had been a healthcare provider that took Nebuchadnezzar in as your patient, they would have diagnosed him as having zoanthropy. That is the condition, the DSM condition for people who act like animals. Literally, I mean, not like your kids, but I'm talking about real animals. So we even have this in our list of possible maladies that we diagnose. But here, and and we know from this story clearly, that this malady is the result of the Lord producing it. A kind of insanity in the king's life. And here's the kicker. For good purpose. Obviously, we cannot draw broad conclusions from this one example. But I would challenge us to be a little more thoughtful about where abnormal or pathological behaviors originate. Is it natural? Is it environmental? Is it genetic? Is it diet? Or is it the decision of God to bring a trial, to bring a test to make a point, to do something that ultimately comes to good that we can't measure necessarily this side of eternity. Nebuchadnezzar's strange behavior tells us that God is not beyond taking from us even our outward humanity if it's necessary to make something bigger happen, some bigger point, some, something that brings glory to himself. The king's strange behavior resulted in the king abdicating his throne for a time, specifically for a period of seven. As I said earlier, that it's not defined in the text. It could be seven hours, it could be seven days, it could be seven weeks. The text doesn't say, Daniel doesn't specify. But as I said later, as you look at the details of the interpretation, it becomes clear that this is seven years. Knowing that the Lord has declared this is coming, now remember, it hadn't happened yet. We're still at the interpretation of the dream. Daniel knows this is coming, and he exhorts the king to do whatever he can to stop it. Specifically, he says, forego sinning, repent, and do works of mercy for the poor. Because of that, it would seem this king is not particularly concerned with the plight of the poor. And in general, it doesn't seem like Daniel thinks he's a very upright man. I mean, he's telling him he needs to make some changes. The question then arises, do we assume that Daniel's offer of mercy was inspired by the Spirit? Or is this just Daniel's point of view, a little helpful advice from the guy who had to interpret the dream? You might assume that Nebuchadnezzar's plight was inevitable because we know that it fits into the Lord's larger plan. I mean, we have a whole chiasm. If this hadn't happened, the chiasm gets ruined, right? So seeing it from hindsight, you think, well, of course it had to happen. And so if that's the way you're thinking, you might find it hard to imagine that the king could have done anything to stop the prophecy, which then begs a new question. Well, why did Daniel offer him any then? Any advice, that is. But I don't think you should assume that too quickly. That is to say, don't assume that there's no opportunity here for Nebuchadnezzar to avoid the fate, because it is a fundamental truth of Scripture that repentance can forestall God's judgment. 
The Lord gave that opportunity to Cain in Genesis 4. He declares it through Job to Nineveh. The prophets declared it repeatedly to Israel. In one example out of Ezekiel 18.29, this is what we read. But the house of Israel, this is the Lord speaking in the first person. But the house of Israel says, the way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent. And turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. It doesn't sound hollow, does it? It doesn't sound like there isn't sincere opportunity in the words of the Lord. And that's a general principle of Scripture, that repentance is an opportunity to forestall judgment. But... The principle of repentance has an interesting corollary that I think we might overlook. As repentance delays, judgment advances. So at some point, the judgment is assured and the time of repentance has come and gone. In the Psalms, you find a good example of this truth. The psalmist writes, Psalm 711, it says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. If a man does not repent, he will sharpen his sword. He has bent his bow and made it ready. He has also prepared for himself deadly weapons. He makes his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, he travails with wickedness and he conceives mischief and brings forth falsehood. But he has dug a pit and hollowed it out and has fallen into the hole which he has made. His mischief will return upon his own head and his violence will descend upon his own pate. So the psalmist says that God is a righteous judge ready to strike against those who fail to heed warnings. And the psalmist says that the one who falls to judgment has just dug their own grave. The unrepentant sinner is like someone who just falls into a hole that he dug for himself. His decision returned upon his head. So these truths don't deny God's mercy. They don't contradict grace. The fact that he extends opportunity to believers and to you, obviously, to the unbelieving world. We're not contradicting any of that. We're simply learning that whatever mercy God may have prepared for those of us or for those who don't know him, that mercy depends on timely repentance. At some point, time runs out. So perhaps Daniel's declaration to Nebuchadnezzar is just such a situation in which he's offering mercy from the Lord should Nebuchadnezzar take opportunity to repent in the time allowed. But if so, then what we see happening next tells us that Nebuchadnezzar did not take opportunity when it was there. Verse 28, it says this. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later... He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. That's my best angelic voice. (laughs) Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird claws. So in verse 28, you get the bottom line. It all happened. Remember, the narrative was written by the king himself. And at this point, he goes into a third person. 
He does so because I believe Daniel takes up the writing of it from the perspective of what people saw happening. Remember, he had a mind of an animal during this time, so I don't know what his memory would have been of the circumstances. But it's still Nebuchadnezzar relating it, and, and Daniel simply is the one holding the pen and filling in the gaps. So in a sense, you could say he's confessing here now to having ignored Daniel's advice. You jump right from a line of advice to the line that says it didn't work. But that's Nebuchadnezzar's self-confession. He ignored it. And the events of the dream waited for 12 months to come to pass. And that delay, in my opinion, would seem to confirm the psalmist's observation that the king had been busy for 12 months digging a pretty deep hole. And then as that year of waiting came to an end, that year of grace, you might argue, at the end of it, the king just had to fall in because he was not interested in changing. In fact, his downfall is so evident in the very moment that he fell, right? He's clearly in pride over his position over the kingdom and the world. Daniel intimates here that the king's pride is the problem in the way that he gives his advice to the king. He says, you know, you need to humble yourself. You need to be preparing yourself to, to repent. I mean, Daniel sort of implies that's his problem already as nicely as he can say it. Verse 30, the king relates how he was reflecting, and I'm assuming here probably to himself, although he may have been talking to his aides or somebody nearby. He was reflecting on how great Babylon had become. Ancient records from this period, records that have been recovered from Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, document the king in writing, boasting of the splendor of his kingdom. Josephus quoted another, even older historian of antiquity, a guy named Berosus, who said Nebuchadnezzar had a lot to boast about. He was an impressive builder, much like Herod the Great was in later times. And some of his buildings were the most ambitious that ancient history has ever seen. His capital city, Babylon, was walled to a circumference of 17 miles, 17 miles around. The king's palace sat inside the city behind a secondary wall that itself was five miles in circumference around his palace. And the river Euphrates ran right through the middle of it all. The hanging gardens of Babylon, which were in his palace gardens, were one of the lost seven wonders of the world that we all you know, can go read about. They were fed by an elaborate water supply. That's how, I mean, if you qualify as one of the seven wonders of the whole world, you know it's something significant, right? And then they had this huge processional avenue that led to the center of the city, statues of bulls and dragons on either end. It, it led up to this huge ziggurat, which is you know, like a, a stair-stepped pyramid that was a temple to Marduk, their god, and in the top of that was a solid gold statue of Marduk at the top of this ziggurat. In other words, he had a lot to boast about from his point of view. It's a very impressive place. But the key comment in his boasting in verse 30 is where he says that he himself made his nation great by means of his own might and for his own glory. And he couldn't have been more wrong on those three points. He didn't make Babylon great. The Lord did. The statue tells us that. He didn't accomplish anything in his own might. It was the Lord's power that created Babylon. And Babylon wasn't elevated to bring Nebuchadnezzar glory. It was for God's glory. All of this has been given in Scripture to Daniel so that the king himself would know it. But his pride has blinded him to the work of God that's been going on through him. And that's despite the fact that the Lord revealed it to him already in a dream. God told him, you're here because I put you here. And the Lord said, you're going to be here for a purpose. And the Lord even told him, you're not going to be here forever. Because another kingdom's coming after you. Despite all that, he somehow has convinced himself that this whole affair is his own doing. And it's all gone to his head. Now he thinks, I have the one with all the power, the wisdom, and the good looks. And it's all responsible for what's happening in this place. You could say it simply. He's forgotten God. And that is always the way pride works. Pride is like spiritual amnesia. It causes us to forget God in every sense. And our ego is only too happy to step into the vacuum that we create 
by our forgetting. Pride is the first sin that ever entered into creation, and since that beginning, pride has been at the work in the hearts of humanity to cause us to forget God in every sense. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. He's describing what happened in the very outset of creation. Though they knew God, he's speaking of Cain. He's speaking of the descendants of Cain. He's speaking about in the first generations of mankind. They knew God. Cain sacrificed to God or or failed to, I guess. He went to God. But though they know him, they didn't honor him. And what happens is you stop honoring God, stop uh, acknowledging God, stop concerning yourself with God, then you turn to futile speculations and a darkened heart is the inevitable result. Pride is spiritual amnesia. Nebuchadnezzar knew God. I mean, at least in the sense that he knew that Israel's God existed. He knew he had power. He knew he put him in charge. He knew he rescued Daniel's friends. I mean, it's not like he hasn't had first-hand experiences with this God. And in fact, go back and look at chapter 3. He's praising this God for his power to save his people. And yet here he is telling himself that he's big man in the universe. So when time runs out for repentance, God's judgment usually arrives swiftly and without additional warning. And that's the case here. Verse 31, Nebuchadnezzar says that even as he was uttering his prideful boasts, he hears his voice from heaven proclaiming his sentence. And that pronouncement includes a little dose of sarcasm. Do you notice that? In other words, before the final boast exits Nebuchadnezzar's mouth, the Lord has already nullified that boast with his own declaration. So the king's declaration was overridden by the Lord's declaration. It's like Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm king of the hill, and the Lord's response was, not anymore. The Lord declared sovereignty, had been removed, and at that very second, a switch was thrown in Nebuchadnezzar's brain. Immediately, his mind became like that of an animal, and his behavior followed suit. You might imagine him just falling to the ground and running off on all fours almost. Now, if you find yourself wondering if God is treating him fairly here for what he's going to put this man through, I want you to remember how we got to this point. The king should have known that the Lord was over all and that he assigns authority as he desires. He had two dreams to explain it. He's had the experience of Daniel's friends to demonstrate it. Yet it still required this dramatic experience before he gets the point. And he does get the point by the time it's over. Ironically, God made Nebuchadnezzar to look insane, but the real insanity was him acting as if the God who had revealed himself to him didn't exist. That's actually more insane, if you think about it, than God just making him act like an animal for a while. So the Lord explains to Nebuchadnezzar in this moment of judgment how his life is going to proceed for the next seven periods. First, he says, you're going to go away from mankind. This is what we've heard. He had just been marveling at the magnificence of his palace. Now he gets denied the comforts of it. Instead, he's literally going to live outdoors in the field where the wild beasts live. No doubt, he's going to be the talk of Babylon. I mean, can you imagine? Thank goodness they don't have Twitter back then. So, as people would just marvel over how far their king has fallen, right? And in keeping with his new animal nature, he will only eat grass, which I'm going to make an assumption here that that may mean he eats various green plants like animals do, not limited to literally just grass, uh, although that could be. Uh, But whatever it is, it's not a normal human diet. I mean, he's not pulling vegetables out of the ground. Animals don't do that typically, right? They just forage for whatever they can get their mouth on. So he has been enjoying the luxuries afforded a king who demanded only the best. And all the while, as Daniel suggested, he's been denying mercy and provision to the poor. So he's been eating the best. 
not giving anybody else anything. Now the Lord visits those sins back upon him so that he's denied even the most basic of human food. Yet even in these harsh conditions, there is grace. God is showing a lot of grace here. Normally a man living out in the field for a long time is not going to survive very long. Wild predators, for example. This is at a place in in a time when they would have been a real threat, including lions. Imagine a guy living out in the fields for years without any protection. You would think he'd be gone pretty quick. Secondly, desert days are brutally hot under the sun, and the nights can be quite cold, especially in the winter. So if an animal didn't get him, exposure probably would have at some point. And then there's his diet of grass. You know, he, he ate food that normally wouldn't sustain a person for long. May even have been harmful stuff, depending on what he chose to eat. So I would say under all of these circumstances, it's hard to believe the king would have survived outdoors very long without God's grace, without his supernatural intervention to make sure he stayed alive. He survived because he was a stump, because he had roots. He's chained in judgment. He's not dead. He's not pulled out. He's not destroyed. In that period of what I will say is seven years, he would have been experiencing this day in and day out with the mind of a beast. Now, why do I tell you it's seven years? Well, first, the description in verse 33 of his appearance would have to imply a very long time. Specifically, his hair grows to the point of looking like eagle's feathers, we're told. Now, that description suggests long, unkept, matted hair, long enough to resemble an eagle's wing, which, by the way, is 22 inches. I looked it up. And his nails are as long as an eagle's talons, which are two inches long. And men's hair and men's nails don't grow that long in seven weeks or even seven months. So it would have to require at least a period of seven years to get to that length. I imagine the people of Babylon would have taken great fascination in the plight of their king. As long as he was alive, he was still their king. Remember, that's how monarchies worked. Though I suspect others were probably handling the business of the kingdom in his absence. In fact, who do you think was probably playing a significant role in the running of the kingdom while he's indisposed? It had to have been Daniel, maybe the most prominent role in the government. We might also suppose Daniel was righting all of the king's wrongs regarding the poor, or perhaps in other areas. And finally, we know Daniel understood the king has got to return to power one day. He's got the whole picture. So he's probably advising the staff to prepare for that day and help them not look at this as a permanent change. Because it's not going to go well for anyone who they later determined was trying to undermine the king in his absence when the king finally comes back into power. Daniel was probably holding down the fort, but making sure everybody knew he's coming back. So the Lord achieved this fair judgment against the king, hitting him at all the points in which his pride was in error. And yet doing it in such a way that also gave opportunity for Daniel to be elevated and to right some of the wrongs in the way the kingdom was being run. We might also suppose that Daniel found a way to show kindness to Israel, who was in bondage at that time. It would have been a tremendous encouragement to the people of God, I would think, to see that their adversary was humiliated while Daniel was taken charge. And that's the point of this chapter again. The power of God resulted in God's people under Gentile rule, but God continues to protect the remnant and the Gentile authorities that God has installed still owe their positions to the Lord and therefore they rule by his grace. So God's in control, to sum it up. Eventually, even Nebuchadnezzar gets this point. Let's finish out the chapter, verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the king of heaven. 
For all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. So, just as God controlled the timing of Nebuchadnezzar's descent into madness, so does the Lord dictate the moment of his recovery. The king testifies now, again in the first person, that after the seven years were complete, he then regained his senses, and as if released from a prison of the mind, the king immediately does what he should have been doing in the beginning. He raises his eyes toward heaven. He makes a declaration that matches the one that we opened with in this chapter. He praises God. He declares that God deserves the honor. He's the one who lives forever and ever. Now, the fundamental difference between animals and men is that God made men and women in his own image so that we could relate to him. In fact, the Westminster Catechism declares that what is the chief and highest end of man? You know the answer? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So Kathy knows her catechism. It requires the mind of a human being, as opposed to that of an animal, in order to do those things, to know God in the full sense of what he reveals, and then to glorify God for who he is. An animal just can't do that. An animal mind is not capable of doing that, and hence it's not in the image of God. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't using his mind when he had it to fulfill his purpose, and so the Lord took his mind for a while. Now that his mind has returned, he immediately begins to use it for its consummate purpose. And so he goes from acting like an animal to being an animal so that when he returns to being a human, he can go back to doing what he should have been doing in the first place, using his mind to know and enjoy God. In the second half of verse 34, the first thing he emphasizes is the never-ending dominion of the Lord, which is the point of the chapter, obviously the point of the episode. God's rule is eternal. It's always in effect. So men come and go as God appoints. But God is the true Sovereign. This is particularly important to remember in an election year. He remains sovereign regardless of which men on earth are in power or, for that matter, which ones choose to acknowledge him as having power over them or not. He doesn't grant everyone the chance to learn the truth that Nebuchadnezzar got the chance to learn, not this side of eternity, although sooner or later every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. But in the meantime, God still is in control. Furthermore, the king goes on to acknowledge the absolute sovereignty of God. Perhaps this is the most personal lesson for the king, because in verse 35 he says, all the inhabitants of earth are accounted as nothing. Now, he doesn't mean that God doesn't care for the people of the earth. That's not his point. He means that in a conversation about power and world outcomes, the only actor that matters is God. God is the absolute author of history. Some have come to think that the Lord just reacts to circumstances that happen, and then he just directs them like a parent who's trying to guide the steps of a toddler down the sidewalk. You're not in control of it, but you're guiding it. You can't let him go too far one way or the other. Or other people go a step further, and they imagine that God is only an observer of his creation, and he just intervenes periodically in response to prayer or maybe an exceptional circumstance or something like that. But the rest of the time, he's just watching us do what we want to do. Well, neither of those views could be further from the truth. And Nebuchadnezzar testifies from first-hand experience that the answer is different. God is in control of all things. I want you to imagine the very worst thing that you can think of from human history that's ever happened. The Lord caused that to happen. And if you want to imagine the very best thing that's ever happened, well, yes, the Lord made that happen too. Because he says that in his word. In Isaiah 45, verse 5, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these. 
That's the Lord's own testimony. Planes fly into towers, tsunamis hit nations, disease, famine. I'm not saying God's heartless or without caring. I'm saying that all of these things are in his control and according to his purpose, which ultimately comes to good ends. The reason we may not know or see that is that our minds and our perspectives are too narrow. We cannot begin to appreciate how the story ends when the story is eternity. And that's why in the life of a single individual, bad things can happen from the standpoint of that individual, yes, or even from those who know them, or even from those who simply live in the same time. But whether that death in that particular way is a bad thing won't be known fully until we're all together in eternity. And then, with that hindsight, we'll understand why God needed it that way, for good outcome. Nebuchadnezzar saw the Lord give him great power, saw it taken away, and he went from the best of times to the worst of times. Now, here at the end, he finds himself back in a position of power once again, and it seems to be that his conclusion is, how can you explain this any other way? The Lord himself revealed the plan. He said how long it would be. He said it would be seven so that we'd all know it's from him. It's a complete number. It's the number that identifies God in that sense. And it all is done exactly as was prophesied. There's no chance here. Well, you might ask the question, where was Nebuchadnezzar's will? Well, we already said Nebuchadnezzar seems to have had an opportunity to repent. But in the end, it all worked out exactly as God said it would. So you're sort of chasing your tail to figure out, could he have stopped it? Well, he didn't stop it. But if he did stop it, would it have still gone the way? No, you've got to go with what happened. Furthermore, in verse 35, the king adds that no one is in a position to second-guess God in what he does. No one can stop him. No one can challenge him. Friends, in a nutshell, that's what it means to be God. The king's account ends with two verses that show the degree to which the Lord's work has changed his heart. First, the king says he's fully restored to power. His counselors come back to him. I'd like to think Daniel was sort of at the forefront of bringing everybody back. Uh, That's true grace for a man who was thought to be insane for seven years. You might wonder why somebody didn't just try to depose him in that time or kill him. I mean, clearly God was going to bring him back. He promised he would. The king also recognizes his own pride was the cause of the downfall. He acknowledges the Lord is working to humble him. And the most ironic thing, or most interesting thing to me, is he seems genuinely pleased to have been brought to this point. You might think when the whole thing's over, he might have been a little perturbed about eating grass for seven years. He doesn't seem to have any regret. He doesn't seem to have any sense of, well, we didn't have to go through that much, did we? No. He seems to prove that humility is a preferable way to go through life than to live in pride. When you seek to be prideful, you imagine it's going to gain you all kinds of advantages in life. But experience teaches us that pride diminishes us in the eyes of others and gives cause for the Lord to bring us low. Finally, look at how the the king addresses the Lord in the final verse of the last thing we do tonight. He gives him praise and honor as king of heaven. Now, those terms would seem to suggest something, wouldn't they? That perhaps Nebuchadnezzar is rejecting the prospect of other gods in favor of just one true God now. Perhaps becoming a follower of that true God. Perhaps, as we would say, becoming saved. And that's certainly in the conjecture of of many. We might contrast his words here with those at the very beginning of the account. And it would seem as though something's changed. But, you know, it could still be possible that his respect for God simply means that he has placed God above all other gods in the pantheon. Only God knows for sure. What happened in Nebuchadnezzar's heart? I, you know, if you're optimistic, you're expecting to see him in heaven. If you're the pessimistic sort, then you'll see him when you get to hell. In the end, in the end, the lesson is clear: the Lord controls those who control Israel. Remember, even after Nebuchadnezzar came to his senses and praised the God of Israel and recognized that the God of Israel is in control and all things happen, etc., 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 when he returned to power, he did not free Israel. 
So the people of God might have assumed that Nebuchadnezzar's possible conversion would have resulted in their freedom, sort of like Constantine, but it didn't. Why not? Well, because God's in control. Because God had a purpose in them being there. Because that's ultimately still the big picture here. You see, it works both ways. They can't complain that they're in slavery as a sign that God is no longer in control. Nor could they now complain for being in slavery because God is in control. He's put them there for good reason. The people of God were in captivity because God brought them there. And chapter 4 of Daniel, therefore, reminds both Jew and Gentile that God is in control. Period. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for... Another opportunity to see your sovereignty, to help us understand the difficulties of our life from a perspective that recognizes you're in control, that though we may not find what we're experiencing to be good or pleasant from our perspective, Father, and we don't have to pretend it is, but we can certainly understand that you have good purpose in it. And perhaps, Father, with that we can have patience and we can have um, a renewed desire to serve you in spite of the difficulties of our life. And when others are hopeless, Father, we will have hope. And uh, when others are confused, Father, we will understand, at least in the sense that we can understand that a good and loving God has our best interests at heart. Thank you, Father, for that, uh, for that wisdom so that we can rest in difficult times. Let us come back next week according to your will and continue in this study. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.